KMTT Kimitzion Tetzay Torah. We'll be hosting Harav Yitzhak Blau, who will be giving a series on modern rabbinic thought. Today we're going to take a look at the thought of Rabnaftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, the Nitziv. The Nitziv was born in 1817 and passed away in 1893. He is most famously known as being the Rosh Yeshiva of Volazhin, the most significant yeshiva in Europe in the 1800s. He indeed actually married the granddaughter of Chaim Volazhin, the founder of this yeshiva. And the Nitziv produced a tremendously wide range of important rabbinic works. He has a commentary on Shas called the Mromei Sadeh, a commentary on Chumash called the Hamek Davar, some important volumes of Chuvot, of Responsa, called the Meshiv Davar. He has a commentary on the Shiltot of Rav Achaygon, called the Hamek Sheila, and a commentary on the Halachic Midrash, known as Sifri, called the Imkei HaNitziv. The last two in particular show the wide reach of the Nitziv, in that the Shiltot was really not a well-known rabbinic work, and here the Nitziv in some ways put it on the map. And even though the Sifri is a more well-known work, yet not so many Achronim wrote commentaries on these works, on the Midrashe Halacha. And we really see the Nitziv's wide reach. It's a very impressive, uh, very impressive collection of works. The Nitziv had two significant sons. One's name was Rav Chaim Berlin, who, of course, uh, the Yeshiva Chaim Berlin is named after. He had a son from a later wife, much later in life, uh, whose name was Rav Meir Berlin, who, of course, became Mayor Barilan, an important figure in the Mizrahi movement. Although we mentioned the wide range and significance of the Nitziv's works, we will focus specifically on the Hamek Davar. In some ways, it seems that the Hamek Davar is where the Nitziv really made his mark more than any other work, his parish on Chumash. Among the themes that we're going to look at, the Nitziv is very concerned about the danger of excessive passion for cleaving to divinity. Now, this is a pretty important point because when people talk about temptations in religious life, people tend to think of uh, more mundane or corporeal uh, lusts and desires and temptations. Right? The idea that divinity or the desire for dveikut can also be a problematic temptation is something that is not always realized and is a fairly significant point. The Nitziv does this in particular fashion in two stories of the Chumash. One is the story of the Karach Rebellion. And if you look at the Karach Rebellion, we notice the following oddity. There seems to be three different groups in the Karach Rebellion. We have Korach himself, we have Datan Vaviram, and we have the 250 men. And different things seem to happen to the different groups in this rebellion. For example, the 250 men go through the test of the Ktoret, in which they die. Datan Vaviram do not go through that test. Korach apparently does. When we look at how they die... They also seem to die in a different way. Datan, Aviram, and Korach seem to be swallowed up, where the 250 men are burnt. Finally, the 250 men have a sort of honor as the aftermath of the whole endeavor, in that it says that uh, in Perak Zion that uh, Hashem, Hashem commands to Elazar to take the machtot, ki kadeshu. Right, and they're supposed to be used as some kind of coding for the Mizbeach. And it seems that uh, there's something significant about what they've done. There's almost something holy about it. And that's why the, uh, the machtot that they used are used. So the Nitziv looks at the story and says the conclusion would have to be that there are different forces at work among the various elements of this rebellion. And he says as follows, the 250 men desired a grand religious experience. They wanted to come close to God. They were not interested in really in challenging Moshe's authority, but they saw this as an opportunity to be makriv k'toret, something they thought would be the, give them a chance to achieve this closeness. 
Datan Raviram, on the other hand, seem to just be troublemakers, people who like a good fight. No grand religious vision inspires their part of the rebellion. Once one says that, it's pretty clear what happens. Datan and Raviram are not involved in the test of the Torah, because this truly does not interest them. The 250 men, of course, this is what it's all about. That's why they're involved. Apparently, the death, the variant deaths, also reveals this as well, where the Nativ would have it, being burnt by divine fire, is somehow a more dignified way to go than being swallowed up by the ground. Being swallowed up by the ground somehow indicates a degrading death. Datan Vavram, there's really nothing redeeming, no redeeming quality in what they've done, and they're swallowed by the ground. Where the 250 men, consumed by religious passion, they go in this uh, more honorable way, they're consumed by divine fire, and that's indeed why their machtot are then used as a covering for the Mizbech, because there truly is something admirable about where they ended up going astray. Where does Korach fit into all this? So here, something very fascinating emerges, and it says a very clever idea. Korach was someone who pretended to be like the 250 men. He was a significant fellow. He did not view it, certainly did not want to present his goal as the someone in search of power or honor or the desire to make trouble. Rather, no, he's also uh, searching for some authentic religiosity. However, the reality of Korach was that he was a corrupt personality. He was much closer to Datan Vaviram in the lack of nobility in motivation. And here we have Korach pretending to be like the 250 men, but in reality being like Datan Vaviram. And this is reflected, of course, in what happens to Korach. Korach is also involved in the test of the Machtot because he presents himself as in search of this religious experience. However, he's consumed by the ground. He is swallowed up by the ground because the reality is that he belongs, he deserves the same fate as Datan Vaviram. One other phrase works nicely in the Nitzvah Pshat. In Perigid Zayin Pasagemo, when it's describing the coding of the Mizbech done with the Machtod, so it refers to the 250 men as those that were Chotim Benafshotam. Machtod HaChataim HaElah Benafshotam. Now this is a phrase we have regarding the Nazir, Asher Chata Al HaNefesh. Now without getting into the famous debate about how we should religiously evaluate the Nazir, I think we could say something we know, that the Nazir seems to be someone who's searching for greater Kedusha beyond, beyond what, uh, what is demanded. And we know that the Nazir, excuse me, also seems to have some kind of hate related, right? Whatever the hate is, is a famous debate with the Rambam and Ramban taking sides. But then one can say that that phrase, hate benefesh, has to do with the, the problematic quality of trying to strive beyond the given. The inherent tension in yearning for spirituality that is not incorporated or not even allowed by the halachic system. And this is something that the 250 men represent. Of course, one other idea emerges from the Nitziv. The 250 men are certainly problematic, and they need to be, we need to warn against these things. In fact, the Nitziv has the parsha, the immediately preceding parsha of Tzitzit, at the end of Shlach, being a warning. That the Tchelet somehow represents our yearning for divinity, right? Tchelet, Dome, Wikisi, Akabod, However, the tzitzis are supposed to remind you that we have to follow mitzvot, that we cannot uh, let our spiritual yearnings create an antinomian drive that does not know structure and law. And we're warning against the 250 men. At the same time, you cannot consider such sinners as the same as the datan vavirams of this world. For the tzitzis, this theme emerges very strongly. Datan vaviram, there's really nothing good to be said about. These are people just looking for problematic goals. With the 250 men, although we are against their endeavor, there's a certain, perhaps, grudging respect for their spiritual yearnings, and reflected again in the Machtot. Now, of course, there is another story in Tanakh that is an obvious candidate for, for uh, this kind of reading, and that, of course, is the story of Nadav Avihu. 
Medavah Vihu also seemed to desire some kind of entry into uh, Kedusha. And as the Nitziv would have it, they too, they too are are motivated in a similar fashion to 250 men. And of course, the stories are rather parallel if one thinks about it. We also perhaps have Haktaret Haktoret. We have being consumed by fire. Again, if the Nitziv is correct, that being consumed by fire reveals a certain uh, dignified death, a certain respect for the motivation of the of the criminal in this case. So Nadav and Avia would have that as well. And here the Nitziv says, that's really implicit in the Nadav Avia story, that we hear that their fate is, Eish Zarasher Lo Otam. An emphasis on they're not having been commanded, and the Nitziv said, mm-hmm. They entered because of this uh, enthusiasm of love of God. Mm-hmm. Certainly, love of God is something very precious to God. Not in the way that God did not command. Now, I don't think the Nitziv is arguing that one can never find any act positive that is not strictly mandated by halakha. Certainly there's a whole element of reshut, of neutral ele- aspects of the world, and there's the chance and the opportunity to sanctify those elements of reshut. But here we're talking about the perhaps antinomian behavior. Right? Nadav and were not supposed to go where they went, not supposed to do what they did, but this love of God overcame them, this desire for a grand religious experience overcame them, and therefore they ended up messing up. And here he says something very clever in the Harchev Dabur, right there in the beginning of Paragud, where there's a Midrash that says, Nadav Aviyu went in pru-e-rosh umuchusrei begadim Right, they had too much to drink, and they were lacking the begadim of the Kohen, uh, of, a, of a Kohen, and that was problematic. And here, it seems a little bit hard to understand why Nadav Aviyu would do so. And the Nitziv explains that they did not think they were engaging in halachic behavior. They thought they were engaging in their own personal drive towards Hitlavut. Once that's true, they didn't think they had a function as koanim, right? Within the halachic system, functioning as koanim, one cannot have had alcohol, and one must be wearing the correct begadim. They were functioning on some independent plane, and therefore, therefore, they uh, committed all these other averot as well. One final point, just as is within tzitzit, that Itziv has a parsha right before the chait, trying to counsel against the chait, so too in parsha shmini, that before the chait in perik tet, pasig vav, we have the following passage, This is the thing to do, And the Nitziv says that Moshe again was uh, anticipated the problem. Moshe knows that there are groups striving for Dvekut, groups that would like would like to cleave to the divinity and perhaps violate halacha in doing so. And Moshe is saying, no, no, don't do that. This is the way to do it, according to the halacha. Interestingly, in both cases, the the warning before did not stop it. Apparently, there's a very powerful drive, and uh, not uh, not every preparation is uh, actually no preparation is guaranteed to stop uh, this yitzhara, so to speak, from functioning. And there, in the Nadavaviu story, the Nitziv is a very interesting reading of a midrash. That there's a midrash in Torah Kohanim about regarding the story regarding the Nadavaviu story, where it says, "Amalam Moshe Yisrael Oto Yitzhara Haviu Milibcham, remove this yitzhara from your heart." And then you'll be in one uh, mode of service, one mode of reverence for God in divine worship. And the Nitziv says the Yetzirah in question, again, is not some more base type of Yetzirah, but rather the Yetzirah of uh, striving for Dvekut. And the Nitziv points out one of the problems with it is not just antinomian behavior, but everybody ends up doing their own thing. There's no sense of a communal performance. No sense of an uh, objectified halachic act that is passed down through the generations. And here the Nitziv says that's Pshat in the Pasuk. If you reject this Yetzirah of kind of this individualized 
make your own strive for spirituality. Then to you kuchem biyirachad vodachad. Then indeed there will be a unified halachic practice that could serve as a focal point for a Jewish communal religious life. And here the Nitziv again mentions one of the dangers in this position. One might speculate historically if the Nitzivs in the mid-1800s, and certainly Hasidut is getting uh, more advanced, that perhaps there are certain aspects, perhaps the more extreme aspects of Hasidut, where the Nitziv would be nervous that the striving for Dvekut would lead to abandonment of Halakha. Although again, as I pointed out before, I think it's important to remember that Nitziv does not view this the same as another transgressor. There is a sense that somehow this transgressor is superior. That's the first theme in the Nitziv. The dangers of an exceeding of a problematic enthusiasm for Avodat Hashem. I'd like to move to a related theme, but a bit different. The Nitziv is also nervous about acts of violence, and even justified acts of violence. And we're not a totally pacifistic religion. There are times when our Avot and David Amelach and others took up the sword, and they were justified. At the same time, there's always a danger of what, what these kind of acts will have on the religious personality. And the Nitzir mentioned this in a few famous places. One famous place is in, with regard to the Pinchas story. Many Mepharshim have noted kind of an oddity that Pinchas takes a spear and kills Zimri and Kazbi. And the reward is of that Hashem gives him in the beginning parasha of Pinchas is shalom, a covenant of peace. And B'tish shalom seems like a little bit of a funny juxtaposition to a, an act of uh, killing. And here the Nitzir says that's precisely the point that Pinchas was totally justified in what he did. At the same time, Teva HaMasesh Asa Pinchas Laharog Nefesh Biado Hayanotein Lahashir Belev Hergesh Az Gam Acharkach. It's the nature of these things that it becomes part of the personality. And there's the danger that Pinchas, having engaged in justified violence, would become a violent person. The Nitziv goes on to say, Aval Basher Hayalashem Shemayim Mishum Hachi Ba Bracha Shiyatamid Benachar Uvmidat Shalom. Says the Nitziv, since Pinchas had idealistic motivations, he was truly not motivated by the desire for violence or the urge to hurt or revenge. Therefore, Hashem gave him a bracha that it would not impact negatively on his personality. So the Briti Shalom is the ability to, ability to remain a person who strives essentially for Shalom despite, despite having engaged in an act of violence. Now, it's important to clarify something about the Nitziv. The Nitziv does not say that anyone who doesn't act like Pinchas is guaranteed by Hashem that it will not have an impact on his personality. He says this is only when it's done L'Shem Shemayim. And uh, there's little reason to assume that every Jew throughout history achieves the necessary level of Shem Shemayim to not be negatively affected. And it's something to bear in mind. Again, there are times when we're justified for acting violently. But for the Nitziv, we'd have to take into consideration the possible impact this would have on the personality. And perhaps we're not all up to that level of L'Shem Shemayim. And it doesn't mean necessarily that we can't do it, but it certainly means that we should take the educational impact and fall out into consideration. The Nitziv says a similar idea regarding Yer and Hidachat. Whether when one, uh, the halacha, that one can uh, wipe out a whole city that engages in idolatry. Now, again, this is a topic for another shi'ar. The Gemara in Sanhedrin famously says there never was an Yeron Hidachat. But certainly there's a mitzvah in the Torah called Yeron Hidachat. And having done so, the Torah says again, God will give you mercy. And once again, it seems like an odd juxtaposition that mercy and Yeron uh, Hidachat, wiping out an entire city, seem to not go together so well. And then it says once again that that's precisely the point. And here he deepens the idea. He says that Yerani Dachar could cause three different problems. First of all, Nase Achzari in Beteva. We could become cruel, just as the Nitziv was concerned that an act like Pinchas performed could cause one to become cruel. Certainly, wiping out a whole city could cause one to become that way. Secondly, the Nitziv says, 
you know, people tend to have friends and relatives in cities. And when a city is wiped out, this is going to cause a lot of enmity in Israel. And people will be angry. People will be angry at the Beitin, people angry at the authorities. And there's another str- strife, can quarrel and can emerge from this act. Thirdly, Renitziv says, the fact that uh, we've lost all these lives, right? The wiping out of a city, uh, the lessening of uh, the Jewish people is something that we'd be upset about. And Renitziv says, once again, that Hashem is saying that uh, it can be done in a way that these problems will not be a problem. But again, only when one is Lashem Shemayim. And then it points to three verse, three phrases in this Pasuk. V'natam is telling you that you will not become cruel, right? The first danger. V'richamecha is telling you that it will not cause enmity and strife. And V'herbecha is teaching you that despite the fact that you're losing a city, this will not cause a lessening of the numbers of Israel. But once again, the Nesiv says this is only when there's no desire for Hana'ami Habiza. If one is thinking about the Erni Dachet and one is uh, uh, carrying this out and thinking, oh, this is great, right? They'll be, uh, I'll be able to take benefit from the city, right? I'll move in, I'll build a house, I'll, I'll take their uh, their uh, fancy items. This would indicate that uh, the intention is all wrong, and indeed, all those negative effects will occur. It is again, it's only the purity of desire, purely for the fulfilling the divine will and furthering that cause, that one could be allowed to engage in such things. So once again, we have a similar theme in which purity of motivation is crucial to prevent uh, act, legitimate acts of violence from becoming corrupting influences. In a similar sense, uh, there are two more comments of the Nitziv that I think are relevant. Uh, regarding the act of Shimon and Levi when they wipe out Shechem, so the Nitziv points out that the phrase there is Shnei Bnei Yaakov. And it could have just said Bnei Yaakov. And the Nitziv says every time it says Shnei, it indicates that there's a duality of motivations. And he claims that one of them was motivated by Kavod Beit Aviv, it was kind of like a family honor, uphold the family honor, like an honor killing, as it were. And the other says was kinat Hashem. It was kind of this uh, revulsion towards those who could engage in rape and, uh, and the like. And it wasn't about family honor, but it was about uh, upholding uh, the values of religion. And the Nitziv says that uh, certainly the second is preferable to the first, but nevertheless, both are certain, have a certain amount of danger with them. Both require great care. And the Nitziv talks about this both in Paragulam and Dalad, where the story occurs, and in Paragulam Tet where Yaakov famously criticized the Shimon for Levi for their endeavor. And the Tzib says there's a difference between them. If you look at what Yaakov says at the end of his life, he says, Al techad kvodi and al tavonafshi. And al tavonafshi says the Tzib is not as bad as al techad kvodi. Like, al techad kvodi is saying it's not an honor to be among you at all. Al tavonafshi is saying it might be an honor, but uh, it's still too dangerous. And the Tzib claims that al techad kvodi is about those that were interested in fulfilling family honor, an act of vengeance, where the Yaakov wants nothing to do with such a motivation. Whereas, Kinat Hashem, Al Maybe it would be honorable to be counted among those motivated by Kinat Hashem, but yet it's still very dangerous. I don't want to be part of it. And the Tiv also cleverly says, when Yaakov says, I'll split them and divide them among Israel. So one can understand that this is a punishment for Shimon and Levi, right? They've messed up, and this is their Onesh. The Nitziv uses it more as a tikkun than an onesh. It's more as a constructive solution. And he claims that we need sometimes a certain amount of uh, righteous indignation. There are people who should be upset, should want to do something about true evil that we face in the world. But when we have too many of those people together, things get a little dangerous. right? They're very hot-headed and they're fired up and they might do something dangerous. So Achal Kem is almost a way of saying we need this trait, but in a spread-out fashion, not concentrated in a powerful force that could do harm. But nevertheless, it's a force that's needed on a, on a lower burner, as it were. One last example of this, in Breshit Chavzai and Pasuk Tet, uh, the Nitziv makes reference to the idea that Yaakov might have been punished because of the cry of Esav. 
And the Nitziv asks, why is it that uh, the cry of Esav would be a source of being punished? After all, Yaakov seemed to impact on Yitzchak as well. Right? Yitzchak has a charada. Maybe the, uh, the trembling of Yitzchak should be a source of his being punished as well. And the Nitziv says it gets back to the purity of motivation issue that Yaakov did not have any enjoyment from the fact that he made Yitzchak tremble. Uh, quite the contrary, he would have liked to not hurt his father at all, but given the circumstances, he ended up doing so. However, the Nitziv postulates that Yaakov, not having gotten along with Esav, enjoyed the cry of Esav upon finding out that Yaakov had received the Bechorah. And this is something that Nitziv says that's problematic and can be punished for. And that is why... That is why it's specifically for Esav, and I th- for, for the cry of Esav. And I think, once again, one sees this idea that one's engaging in a problematic act, and one has to be careful about purity, purity of motivation. And when one lacks that purity, one can be punished for it. Just to further one last idea, and we'll move on to the third theme, the Nitziv also points out that Yaakov brings Shnei Gdiyim, which the Midrash connects to the Shnei Sirim, the Sir Lashem, the Sir Lashem, Yom Kippur. And the Nitziv says this has to do with doing something that's normally negative for a good cause, right? Normally, you, you would not take a seer and take it to Azazel, leaving aside different understandings of that, but it's certainly not a normal kind of avodah. But in a given cir- circumstance, it's justified. Yaakov here is lying to his father. This is certainly not something we would uphold as normal behavior. Yet given the circumstances, it could be justified. Again, this parallel between the seer Azazel and the sheker of Yaakov. At the same time, the Nitzib would say, when one is engaging and in adopting such negative traits, one has to be extremely careful. And if Yaakov lacks a bit of that care, so this has ramifications. And this is manifest in his enjoying the cry of Esau. At this point, we've seen two themes of the Nitziv. The danger of excessive enthusiasm for Tevekut, and the danger of acts of violence. Let us move into a third theme of the Nitziv, which is not connected to the first two. The Nitziv is a very interesting shita in that he claims that certain mitzvot of the Torah are functioning on two levels. They are functioning on one legal level for the Dor HaMidbar, for the generation being addressed, and they are functioning on a totally other legal level, Lidarot, for all generations. And the Tziv does this, to the best of my knowledge, four times in his commentary. One time is to solve a, a famous problem in Parshat Achremot. Parshat Achremot, of course, outlines the Avodah that the Kohen Gadol is supposed to do on Yom Kippur that enables entry into the Kodesh Kedashim. And the Parsha begins with Achremot Shnei Bnei Aron, and then it says, Bezot Aron Kodesh, not mentioning the fact that it is Yom Kippur. Only when it gets to Pasuk Chavtet, right after 28 Pesukim of describing what one is supposed to do, then it says that this happens to take place on Yom Kippur. Now, this is very unusual in how the Torah usually describes what happens on the Chagim. We're used to the fact that the Torah will first say what date it is, right? It's the seventh month, the 15th of the month, and here's what you do. To the best of my knowledge, this is the only place in Chumash where we have the date only listed at the end. Now, there are various solutions to the problem. For those who are curious, Rav Hirsch has a very interesting solution at the end of the parak there. But the Nitziv says it's reflecting of the fact that there's really uh, one mitzvah for Aaron and one mitzvah for Darot. For Aaron, the mitzvah is that he can go in whenever he wants. I mean, any day of the year that he does all this avodah that we normally associate with Yom Kippur, Aaron can go in, and indeed the parsha begins, Bezot Yavar Aaron Elakodesh, without need to reference the fact that this is Yom Kippur, because Aaron could go in any day. When it gets to Pasuk Chavtet, it says, Vaitalachem l'chukat olam, b'chodesh ha-shvi, b'sar l'chodesh, etc., etc. Because indeed, the chukat olam, the mitzvah of the road, is only b'chodesh ha-shvi, b'sar l'chodesh. This is only meant for Yom Kippur. The Nitziv tries to solve a few other problems in the parak there, in Perak Tetzayin. The Nitziv points out that Chazal identify the Ayol Ola with the Ayol from the Musaf, mentioned in Parshat Pinchas and brought in Yom Kippur. And the Nitziv points out that the Musaf of Yom Kippur involves many karbonot, 
and they're not mentioned in Perak Zion. And why would specifically one of the carbonate be mentioned? The Mitziv says uh, he has a, a great answer. Mitziv points out if Aaron could go in when it's not Yom Kippur, he's not going to be bringing the Musaf of Yom Kippur. Ah, but what if that ayah from the Musaf of Yom Kippur is a crucial part of the process in enabling Aaron to go into the Kodesh Kedashim? If that's true, one would need to bring it even when it's not Yom Kippur. So apparently this ayah normally does double duty. It's part of the Musaf of Yom Kippur, and it's part of the process of entering the Kodesh Kedashim. And the Parsha needs to mention that when Aaron is gone, when it's not Yom Kippur, he will need to bring this ayah independently. So this is one example where the Nitziv has the Parsha working on two levels. The Nitziv has a similar thing with regard to the Paraduma. And there seems to be a conflict or perhaps a contradiction about the essential nature of the Paraduma. Is the Paraduma something that's mitaher, that makes you ritually pure? Or is it something that's mechaper, that atones? And it's important to keep these as distinct as separate concepts. Tuma and Tara is not necessarily about sin. Right? Someone who works for Hevra Kadisha, who is frequently becoming Tamimate, the most severe form of Tuma, is certainly not a sinner. Quite the contrary, they're engaged in a very significant mitzvah. And yet they become Tamay and they need to become Tahor. And the, they would not need Kapra, they would need Tahara. So which is the Paraduma for? To complicate matters, we seem to have a contradiction in Chazal. On uh, the very first daf of Yuma and daf Bet, the Gemara is very explicit that, that para ena mechaperet. There's a drasha on the pasuk la sot That la sot is for the paraduma. La is for Yom Kippur. La sot the, the paraduma cannot be connected to the word la because it's not about kapara. It's about becoming tohar from tomat mei. There is no atonement theme. Yet there's a Gemara moed katan and daf chavchet where it says why is the death of Miriam juxtaposed <coughs> to the paraduma? The very end of the previous parsha, right before Chukat, Mitat Miriam the Paraduma, right before, excuse me, very end of Perak Yutet, right before Perak Chath. And uh, the Nitziv says the idea is that this uh, links Mitat, the death of the righteous, with the Paraduma. Uh, sorry, excuse me, this mistake there, I'm sorry. The death of Miriam is right after the parsha, right? Paraduma is in Perak Yutet, in the beginning of Chukat, and the death of Miriam is in Perak Chath. But we seem to have a contradiction. We have a contradiction whether the Gemara in Yuma says the Paraduma is Mitaher, not Mechaper, and the Gemara in Makatan says it's Mechaper. And the Nitziv says that that's the difference between the first Paraduma and the Paraduma for all generations. The first Paraduma, of course, is symbolically linked with Chet HaEgel. And throughout Bamidbar, there's a desire to try to achieve Kapara, to achieve atonement for Chet HaEgel. And that's what that Paraduma is all about. And the Nitziv very cleverly explains the juxtaposition to the death of Miriam. We know that the, the women of Am Yisrael were not involved in Chet Egel. So Miriam represents not falling into the trap of Chet Egel. And therefore the first Paraduma, that Parad, Parat Moshe, is linked with the death of Miriam. It's involved in achieving atonement for Chet Egel. However, Lidorot, Paraduma loses that element of Kapara, and it's purely uh, an idea of Tahara, of becoming Tahar from Tumat Mate. And it says that's why in Perikut Ted Pasigbad, there's kind of like a double beginning. Zod Chukata Torah Shetzivash and Lemar Daber El Bene Yisrael, Viyakhu Elecha, etc. Says the Nitziv, Zod Chukata Torah, that is for all generations, right? That's a phrase for the halacha for eternity. Daber El Bene Yisrael is addressing the people who are hearing this message right now. That Amishal has to understand that the Paraduma, the first Paraduma, has an element of Kapara for Cheda Ego. Mention one more example. The Nitziv has a similar idea in two more places. One I'll discuss, one I will not discuss. Regarding Shiluach Tmeim and Hamachna, and Bamid Barhei, the Nitziv has this idea as well, that the Parsha is working on two levels, one for that generation, one with the road. Similarly in Parag Yidzayin, regarding the prohibition of Shchutes Chutz, shechting outside of the Beit HaMikdash. 
And there's a famous question about Shavuot Echutz. The Parsha in Vayikra Parag Yudzayin says there's a problem if one Asher Yishachet Chutz Lamachane. Now, what's being addressed here? So, one possibility is that we're just talking about the world of Karbanot. And indeed, Rashi says, right, We're talking about the world of Karbanot. And only Karbanot are not supposed to be brought anywhere other than in the Mishkan, in the Olmoed. However, the Ramban points out that there's a position in the Gemara that Besar Tava, meat uh, just for your general desire, not a Karban, is also in the Midbar. If that's true, it could be nothing was allowed to be sacrificed out of the Olmoed. Meaning, according to this Tanitic position, the only meat that was allowed to be eaten was Besar Shlamim. And that, if that's true, says the Ramban, one need not say that the Pasuk is addressing Mugdashin, the Pasuk could be addressing Chulin. Don't shecht any animals without bringing it as a karban in the Mishkan. The Nitziv points out that the Rambam seems to hold, like Rabbi Akiva, i.e. that Besar Tava was actually mutter in the Midbar, and yet he explains that this Parsha is addressing Chulin. And it would obviously become a question, why should this parsha be addressed in Chulun if Chulun is mitter in the Midbar? And the Nitziv explains that Chulun was mitter, but not through Shechita, but through Nechira. He explains that it was trying to avoid a certain idolatrous practice. And this was avoided, avoided if one did Nechira. Apparently these pagans did not do Nechira, they did Shechita. And that was the concern. That's why there's a limitation on what meat, how one could prepare meat in the Midbar. And therefore the parsha could still be about Chulun as well. It's telling you no Shechita happens outside of Olmoed. Because it's true that you could have chulin, but only through Nechira. But then it points out, but then the Parsha would have to work on two levels. For that generation, it would be even addressing chulin, because you can't do shechita outside of the Olmoed. Of course, Lodorot, we don't uh, kill animals through Nechira, we kill through shechita. And shechita becomes mutter outside of the Mikdash as well. And then the Parsha is only for Mugdashin. And here we see an interesting theory that it's that could solve certain shot problems, that mitzvahs could par- parshiot of uh, law could work on two levels, one for the Dorot, one for all generations. We've seen three themes in the Nitziv. I'd like to just conclude with perhaps tying the first two themes together. We saw the Nitziv was nervous about violence. We saw the Nitziv is nervous about uh, excessive uh, religious passion. This perhaps can be connected in the Nitziv's famous introduction to Breshit, where the Nitziv points out that uh, Breshit is the book of Sefer HaYashar, and Sefer HaYashar refers to the Avot. And this is because the Avot are not just okay vis-a-vis Hashem, but they also, even people they don't agree with, they know how to get along and treat them with respect and dignity. And the Nitziv points to Bayit Shani as a time when people viewed everybody who was a bit different religiously than them as an Apikaris, and could even engage in acts of violence towards them. And here the Nitziv is pointing out this joint danger, perhaps, of religious passion and violence coming together. And the Nitziv is certainly not against religious passion, but we should remember the dangers that some of these things could lead to. And uh, I think we've seen some very significant themes here in the Nitziv.